Hey, my name is Connor Malley, and I'm the founder of SQR Squash Radio. And it turns out I'm a squashpreneur. What does that mean? Basically, an entrepreneur, but in the squash industry. I founded Metro Squash in Chicago. I've been a teaching professional, tried out for Team USA, came nowhere close to making the team. But years later, I did find myself on the business side as director of Team USA. I've ran the US Open while working at US Squash for several years, done consulting for squash clubs and events, even court construction. The list goes on. These days, I'm still deeply involved in squash, especially with my new role with the PSA, the Pro Squash Tour, but trying to expand into other racket sports in lighting, court construction, and strategy. There's some exciting projects I'm working on, and I can't wait to share them. But in the meantime, we hope you're enjoying these squash-focused podcasts our team is helping to put out. We love doing them, and we hope you enjoy them too. What about this? This call is being recorded. Today's guest is Manik Mother, who is originally from India but has made the United States his home since 2006, when his squash excellence helped him find a spot on the national championship team of Trinity College. In this episode, we cover his experience of playing on a national championship college team, what he learned from the best college coach in the United States, Paul Asiante, as well as from his teammates. Then we dive into the path for him to climb the ranks on the SDA doubles tour, eventually becoming number one in the world. We move beyond the court and talk about his passion in the world of music and his love for creating music of his own as well as DJing. And for a taste of his kind of music, the track you're listening to now is what he created. Lastly, we touch on his own branding and now that he's transitioning into real estate, how that has helped him get a jump start. We go through our typical quick fire section. We learn more about each guest. And it was great to sit down with Monik, who has been such a pillar within the squash community, specifically the doubles community, where he will be greatly missed, but we are cheering for success on his new career path in real estate. If you're enjoying these podcasts, one thing that would really help is leaving a rating or a comment on social media. Could be quick, but makes a big difference. We really appreciate all the support and we look forward to doing more. A quick thank you to our sponsor, Pro Sport LED, your trusted lighting source for racket sports facilities like squash, tennis, pickleball, or padel. Because of its advanced LED lighting technology, these lights are a perfect solution for anyone building a new facility, but they can easily be retrofitted into existing courts. If you're looking for lights or know anyone that is, please go ahead and connect us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hey there, Squash fans. Welcome back to another episode of Squash Radio. I'm your host, Connor O'Malley, and joining us today is a very exciting guest. This has been a long time in the making. We have Manik Mother, who's originally from India, but calling in today from New York City. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Connor. I'm really excited and looking forward to catching up with you. Well, I think um, the timing on this is so great because you're actually at a transition period where you are leaving the pinnacle squash, going out on top. We've, we're going to more detail about this, but lots of number ones in your resume, and you're joining the world of real estate. And I'm going to bookmark that to come back to because I want to go give the audience a little bit of background about you and how you made it to that decision point, which really for the squash players here, 
uh, in the U.S. I think a lot of that comes with roads to Trinity. And you were there during the period of time where you were carrying the mantle of the streak that started in 1998 going to 2012 where you guys didn't lose a match. And you were there 2006 to 2009. And obviously a lot of that credit goes to Coach Paul Asiante. Indeed. What a legend. Yeah. Actually, how did you two meet? Well, we met on my first day on campus, believe it or not. So in January 2006, I met him while I was already admitted, but we were connected through my best friend's brother, who's also a very good friend, who was class of 07 at Trinity at the time. And I had graduated high school, you know, tried to take a gap year and play on play on the singles tour for a while. And I just didn't really love that experience. I grew up with a great group of friends who all played high level of squash. So we trained together and hung out a ton and still best friends to this day. And then all of a sudden I graduated high school. Everybody went in their own different ways. And here I was training to play on the single store and it was really lonely. And long story short, I wanted to make a change and my sister was already in the States and everybody that plays squash knows of Trinity and the opportunity to be a part of the legacy. And you know, I knew about Trinity, but I didn't know about, about, about Trinity where there was so much history and so much prestige behind the program. And I got the opportunity and I grabbed it with both hands. And where are we? 11 years later, I'm just so grateful. So you and I talked about this briefly of, you know, how, how great coaches and it's almost hard to put your finger on how he does all of that, right? Other that he brings it all together and that he embraces it fully to make the program great. And one of the things you said is like, he leads by example. And I wanted you to kind of expand on that a little bit more. What do you mean by he leads by example? I mean, every little bit of his life, right? I think the way he approaches his day, the way he approaches his fame, the way he approaches his recruiting process, the way he approaches his relationships, you know, he's probably the most modest, humble, but at the same time, confident, determined individual I've met. He's still to this day, someone we all call often when we are down when we need some advice, when you need some help, you know, he was the first one into the building in practice. He was the last one out. He never missed a step. He never missed a beat. And, but I think for me, the biggest takeaway was his calmness in the storm and his modesty and his, his affection towards everybody. And he also knows everybody and remembers something about everybody. He, he's someone who genuinely cares and that's for me one of those things that after I met him, it helped me subdue myself and I really kind of emulated his sort of vibe is the best way to put it. He's a very calm but confident individual and yeah, I think that's the best way to answer it. Like I think he does lead by example and like that kind of is a complete uh, circle of every single aspect of life that he embodies. I'm very mindful that one of the great things that Coach did was he was a great recruiter. He knew how to find the talent and then attract them and bring them to the school, which is Trinity. Mm -hmm. Now, 
that brings both a huge amount of opportunity and a huge amount of liability, meaning that there's a lot of different personalities from just personality makeup to obviously the number of different nations that everyone is from. So it's a total mixing pot and a lot of everyone wants to be the best that they can. So one thing that I saw that that I thought was very effective was that you guys were all concerned about playing your best for Trinity and for coach, less about your own, and correct me if I'm wrong, but your own sort of status or your own position. You know, it's about the uh, what's on the front of the jersey, not the back. And I'm curious, that seemed very purposeful. And so as a senior, where you're basically in a leadership role, how are you trying to help instill that to the incoming freshman class? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Again, I think it starts with coach. I think the way he'd structure his practices and the way he structures approach to everything and the way he, he structured our sort of day-to-day activities, we'd end up eating, going to class, hanging out, doing everything together, which kind of innately facilitated this sort of brotherhood and team dynamic with all of us. And then you can bring in the entire streak aspect and the winning ratio and all that stuff where all of us didn't want to be the group of guys that that lost it right and we kind of wanted to see the best for each other and we do whatever we could for each other and make sure we performed at the highest level but at the same time being international kids we didn't have that support system to fall back on when we went home on a Friday or whatever it was, right? We had each other and that's where we had each other's backs to a whole different level, right? Like if we had issues going on at home or we couldn't just go home, we're all very far away from home and it just strengthened the bond beyond imagination. And I think that's another aspect where coach creates the, the dynamic and he creates and he facilitates us to build lifelong, strong relationships that I think being international students just has a extra sort of oomph to that meaning. Essentially, it sounds like, and it, it's funny, I've heard it referred to as such, but what you're spelling out is like the Trinity family, right? 100%. And so I'm curious... I think a lot of us can imagine you talking about spending a lot of time together and doing activities together, all of which can create this sort of level of bonding. And I do think that sometimes uh, it's what can define us or separate us is, is not how we are together in the good times, but how we act um, during the challenging times. And so I'm curious, was there a tension that ar- arose during the season with your teammates? And if so, how was that addressed and handled? I mean, there was there was bound to be tension. We're talking about something that was 11 years ago, too. So there was bound to be tension, but it never kind of filtered or festered in any sort of negative way. I think we'd play uh, challenge matches against each other. And you know, I can think of two guys right now who are my roommates, and they played eight and nine and very competitive, but roommates, like, Till today, we're, we were best men at each other's weddings. and But yeah, the, the the animosity or the competition that existed 11 years ago is just a joke now. And we joke about it and we laugh about it. And then they'll play rematches and have bragging rights for another five years and whatever it is. But no, there was never, there was never any long-lasting animosity. Um, I think that would get put to bed very very quickly and then the 
we just had each other and we had to figure it out and find ways to move on from it and which we did and i'm very lucky to have those friends and those teammates well speaking of which and it sounds going back to leading by example and also essentially trying to create lifelong bonds i think that there's a story that um, illustrates that and i'd like to spend just a, a minute or two t- talking about one of your teammates, which was Sean Johnstone, who really, this is back in December 2016, received right. some devastating news that he was diagnosed with cancer. And, you know, talk to us about what you and your teammates did to when you heard the news. Yeah, I mean, look, obviously, Sean's one of my closest friends, and we speak almost every day. And that was, that was a tough day. And believe it or not, we both had a conversation a week before that. And we're like, Hey, like we should probably go and do physicals and just make sure we stay on top of that stuff. And it just turned out that I went for a physical the same day. And so did he. And I got up, got out of mine in like half an hour or whatever it was. And his ended up just taking a lot longer. And he calls me right after it and gives me the news. I was at the racket club where I was working at the time. And it was 4 p.m. I had three lessons left. I dropped everything and drove out to Locust Valley where he lives. And there was about four others of us who did the same thing, who were in the area, who could go there and be there with him. And, you know, I think you know, it's obviously very emotional to talk about, but it was just one of those instances where being international kids and having all those bonds and all those good times we were we were definitely there for each other in the tough and in the bad and his community in long island did a lot for him and i think us on our end of things were instrumental in also raising funds for him like harrow the racket company was great they designed some rackets for him which all of us sold in our different programs and clubs and raised money for him, for his, for his foundation. And, you know, that's not only speaks to the Trinity community, but it speaks to the, the close knit squash community as well. And special, the game that we all play and love is, and everybody's stopped to do what they could for Sean. And that was very, very special to see you know, on the micro scale as well as the macro scale for the game in general. Yeah, it was when I heard the news, I remember just being you know, like, stop me in my tracks when you hear someone that young with tackling something that serious. And I remember seeing the fundraising page and it was something like, I was like, I need to get to it. And I think I went back 24 to 36 hours later to contribute. <laughs> and the amount of people in all all different dollar amounts they were just sending their support, their love, and their dollars was, I mean, it blew me away. And it blew all of us away for sure, and including Sean. I know that for a fact. It was very special. It's a testament to who he is too, right? He is he is, is the life of the party and in today's day and age in a different sort of way. But, I mean, he's he's just got the best energy and even till today has the best mindset about it all. And yeah, we all are very grateful for his support system and for his friendship and the community we were able to be a part of. I do think that there are things that we can learn when we see our friends go through that kind of experience and you just kind of touched on that. What was highlighted for you about Sean facing that problem? 
I've taken a lot from it too. When you're thrown such adversity, look, like I think we've all played competition and played matches and like, oh yeah, well, like we know how to deal with that mental aspect. And I, I feel like I can, in today's day and age where mental health is so important and it's so important to speak about. I think as an athlete, at least for me, you feel like you can control your mental state while you're on the court. That's a small smidget of your life and of your day. And you know, just taking his sort of approach and mindset with his adversity and being so positive and spending it around almost literally almost in an hour after his news and since then has been so positive about it has just been an amazing learning imbibing experience for me and and for us in general. He's still the most positive, energetic guy that we all know and love. And that's the biggest thing that I can take away is his positive sort of mental attitude. And he obviously understands what he's going through, but he approaches it in a very positive manner, which I think is something that we all can take away and learn from. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly infectious almost in terms of like when you're around him and, you know, he puts you in a good mood. He, yeah. He's, yeah, it's, it's a remarkable guy. I also, I, I do think, I don't know if that's part of people from Zimbabwe too. I, I've always been impressed by others from Zimbabwe where there's very positive people. It's interesting. Yeah, 100%. I think that's true. That now that you mention it, I'm thinking of all my Zimbabwean friends and yeah, they're all very high energy, positive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think maybe people just need to go spend time there. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break to hear a word about our sponsor. So Lee, we want to thank you for being our first sponsor on Squash Radio. And just want to say, you've sponsored other avenues, but squash is always where your heart's at. What does it mean to you to be sponsoring squash? I, I think there's just a, a lot of interesting people in the sports. I've attended junior tournaments, I've been to professional tournaments, and you can always get into some engaging conversations. And I think squash radio is an avenue of bringing those people to the forefront. And I'm sure a lot of people would like to listen to And sponsoring this, we're just uh, facilitating that. That was Lee Witham, who is the CEO of Pro Sports LED, the sponsor of this podcast. You probably don't even think about lighting, and neither did we until we started talking to Lee. And now we totally get the problem that Pro Sport LED is fixing. And we know maybe that's not you now, or maybe not you ever. But if you know anyone who might be interested or need to improve their lighting for squash, tennis, soccer, you name it, it would mean a lot to us and our sponsor if you'd put us in touch. You can go to squashradio.com slash LED or email squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thank you again and back to our show. So w one of the other things about your career is what you've been able to do to climb the mountain in the double on the doubles tour and you've achieved the number one ranking on the SDA and I'm curious because I know like many of us we find doubles sort of not by happenstance but at a point where hey we're not concerning singles as much so once you started playing doubles how long did it take before you set the goal I want to be world number one well look I think there's two two conversations here I think one everybody needs to understand that double squash hardball double squash is very different from softball single squash and it's almost like you have to call them different sports because it requires a completely different 
skill set and strategy and all the above. It, it is a different game. So I think for me and a lot of other people that gravitate towards it, our skill set from the singles court gave us an advantage to get the hang of the game a little sooner than most. But no, I mean, look, I think when I first started playing, I was working at the field club and I had the opportunity to get on court and had to teach lessons and get out with people and decide to learn on the fly. And I had Narelle Krizak, Mark Price, Lee Belknap, Rob Krizak, Steve Sharf, Joe Penland, who I just ran into the other day. You know, I had all these guys kind of, and of course, Pete Briggs, who I worked with right after that. But I had all these people around who got me involved in the game. So that was another big jump start. So I think I had my skill set that got me to the level that I did on the singles court that transferred over pretty easily to doubles. And then I had a great support system of for other pros that helped me learn. But when I first started playing, that was never the goal. And I remember watching my first Briggs Cup and seeing Damien, Ben, Paul, and Victor playing. And it was the final. I was like, oh my God, like these guys are ridiculous. And the ball was just flying around and they exhibited such extreme ball control that it just seemed very unattainable. But, you know, it's, I think after a year, year and a half, I started playing a lot more and I moved over to Apoamis and worked with Pete and started playing with Swiss. And we didn't qualify, I didn't qualify for my first Briggs Cup which was with Sean, and which is when I saw these guys playing. And then the following breaks up, because it's every alternate year, Swiss and I ended up winning it. So it was just very sort of quick piece to it all. And I think Swiss has a lot to do with my growth as a player as well. I think he had been playing a while. He graduated college in 2006, and I graduated 2009. But that group of people really kind of helped me hone in my my skill set that I brought from the singles court to the doubles court. And yeah, that was my my real introduction to the game. And I think after winning that first Briggs Cup and playing a decent amount, and I played my first tournament with Swiss and St. Louis and we got to the finals and we had to qualify to get in. And there were significant moments there that made me start believing that I could be good at the game. And then that's when the goals were set. But I think my initial introduction to the game was like i like to hit the ball hard and move it around be creative kind of find different angles and you know see the court very differently so that's kind of how it all started you know i think doubles to your point is and even in tennis is a very different beast you know a good singles player in tennis doesn't always make a good ten doubles tennis player so i do okay. think that there's learning that that strategy because you have to work with the teammate you have to play together it's a yeah. whole different beast and I, I do love the joke you know was it the best tip and to become a good doubles player is pick a good partner <laughs> so which you obviously have a track record of having great teammates but also you're holding your own so one other hat that you wore that you were on top of the mountain was your role at the racket and tennis club and myself also having to, been a, a teaching professional not to your level but you know I really enjoyed the membership and, and having that sense of community and I'm curious you've been such an integral part of a chapter at the racket and tennis club and just talk a little bit about what you loved most being there yeah i loved it i think it's such a such a special place and funny story is that when i got to trinity in january of 2006 
we actually ended up going to the racket club in New York City for something. I don't know whether it was a match or it was a stop on the way. Coach always loved to stop in steam rooms. And I think maybe that was just a stop. I don't remember it exactly. But I was just blown away by the facilities, the club, the energy, the vibe. And uh, I said to myself that I'd love to be associated with this institution at some point in my life. And whether it was as the head squash professional or as a member or whatever it was, I hadn't pinned that down in my head. But I was like, this is cool historic institution but no like you said it's such a great little community you know people come in there to get a workout get a sweat and also to kind of have that space and it's they bring good energy there's good energy in the building and then they leave and go on with their days i was very lucky to be a part of the place and made some great relationships met some amazing people and there's nothing like getting to know someone and spending time with them like there is when you play a sport with them and i loved teaching my lessons and meeting members and hanging out with them and really getting to know a different set of people i'd come you know i had my and i I feel the same way about a lot of the clubs that i taught at you know but the, the racket club is sort of the most celebrated squash program in the country and being at the helm of it and growing it and taking it to a different place is something that I'll always cherish very closely. Well, along those lines, knowing that you like to put your spin of creativity and you being at the the helm of this of this program, what was something that you deployed a lo- something creative that maybe only you know but you you saw the impact? Like what was something you're kind of proud of that worked? A lot of little things, right? I think we have the biggest member guest in the country and when I took it over, I kind of added my spin on it where we we changed the way um it was played out and formulated to kind of enhance the member experience as well as increase court time. Like I think we had only one double scored but a 500 odd member body that played squash and so we had to find creative ways to work around that i think for the racket club it was a lot of building events and competition and yeah events essentially so i created a breakfast league where we didn't have something like that in the morning and finding ways to add add hours to the court because our courts were busy from you know 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. at night. So I'd found ways to add at court time in the mornings. And then I also added a lot of teaching opportunities and clinics and things like that and round robins that sort of added to the the member experience. I feel like when, and it also increased a lot of sort of relationship building with the squash, with the pro shop. And I feel like it was always very, I don't know how to put it. You know, it's, I feel like, I just added a lot of sort of interactions with the pro shop and with the clinics and the teaching lessons and things like that, that, you know, sort of was my creative spin. I like it. I actually hadn't heard of a breakfast league before. Tell me, tell me a little bit more about what that, what was the format, how did it work? We had a lot of uh, demand for early morning squash and, we had a lot of demand throughout the day and the night. So we didn't have a lot of staffing in, in the early mornings at 6, 7, 8 a.m. So we basically created a league that allowed a group of members that wanted to play in the morning have games. 
Very cool. Well, I, I do want to transition um, into something else. And, and I think you do a great job of sharing your passions with a bunch of people. But what some people may not know about you is your career within music. And so, you know, going beyond the court, we're going to talk about your love of music and how your creativity involved there. And that's both being like a DJ and a producer of music. So within your love of music, like what do you gravitate most towards? I gravitated most towards house music and electronic music in general. I think growing up, it was always something that I listened to to alter my mindset, whether it was to calm down or whether it was to train or get excited or get ready to play a match. And I think most athletes do have that sort of go-to music and go-to systems to get you into a certain mindset. And it had such an impact on me that I always wanted to figure out how it was made and what went behind it. And my dad's brother, my uncle, who I grew up with, was a Western classical pianist and composer. And so you know, he was always very encouraging of it. And we, when I first started out, he would sit with me and we'd try and figure it all out together. And him and his professional classical background and me and my no formal training music background, we'd have a lot of fun. And yeah, so I, that got me into DJing because I would sit with like two computers or two sounds and try and put them together. And it was very haphazard, but it was a fun thing. And I started DJing in high school and then I DJed at Trinity a bunch. Uh, and then right when I graduated, I was DJing around New York City a good amount. And then I started producing as well. And that's kind of it in a nutshell. So when you're going to produce a new piece of music, how do you break down that? What's your creative process for pulling that together? You know, it's always something that sticks out to you, right? Whether it's a sound or whether it's a drum or whether it's a melody or whatever it is it's just it's just one thing that really starts everything else so it can be a simple sound it can be like a pattern it can be a drum pattern it can be an instrument pattern it can be a vocal if you're doing a remix like whatever it was like for me it was just my time to relax and have fun i would just go where the flow went you have structures in place and i took a lot of courses towards the in the last few years and the various strategies that you can use to ensure proper workflow. But for me, it was like whatever struck out to me and I'd go from there and build around it and, and see what happened. You know, I think in sports, we talk a lot about getting in the zone and what that can right. feel like. And when we're in the zone, a lot of great things can happen. And I think in the creative outlet, that's sometimes usually called a flow state, which can happen in whether it's computer programming or, you know, but especially with what you're creating here. How long... Like, would a would a flow state happen for you? Like, how many hours would go by? Oh my god, it would be it could be an entire day, right? Like it would be it could have been hours, and I'd have so much fun, and I'd listen to the same like eight bars all like throughout, and just kind of tweak and have. Uh, I mean, my dog would like hit me with his paw and be like, "All right, it's been seven hours. Let's go out," you know. So I totally understand what you're saying with the flow state. It would just take you to a different place and. You you lose track of time and have your piece of music that you made and whether it was good or not you just felt so happy and so satisfied and yeah it's a special it's a special creative outlet for me that I've thoroughly enjoyed and need to ensure it stays a part of my life if you've uh, sort of rewind the clock back to let's just say Monica coming out of college and 
he's now starting to get back or wanting to create his own music. What would be the fast track or the lessons that you learned that you would try to impart on him, knowing what you know now? That's another very good question. I think following the systems to maximize your time when you're in that flow state, right? Like mm-hmm. setting timers, setting systems to to actually make sure that those eight hours that you're just in the flow don't aren't just eight hours, but they're productive eight hours so that you could maybe do that in two hours and then focus your attention into other things to building your 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 brand right building your position as the producer as well not just someone who sits for eight hours and makes a piece of music and then hasn't done anything else for the rest of the day and then also not being afraid to put stuff out i think it's a creative process it's a creative outlet like it's just gotta be kind of put out there and shared and it has to be you know you learn from everything that you put out so i think that would be the biggest piece of advice as well which I, I think all makes sense. And two things that jumped out was that mean, it sounds like creating constraints could be helpful. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, for sure. Crazy. So the other part was, so one was creating constraints and then uh, open to feedback. Would that be kind of what you're, you're saying, getting yeah. out there? and then Yeah. You know, what's working, what doesn't work, what do people have to say? And also being confident of what you're putting out there, you know, for sure. Well, I, that actually is a really good transition opportunity to the the last part of this, which is talking about branding, you know, and I guess the way I'll set that up because there is a creative aspect to podcasting and I very much went into, I had to learn all this stuff and I put so much work into the, the creation aspect and then I was almost out of gas for the distribution aspect and the marketing, which I've learned the hard way is it's the wrong ratio, right? Like you really yeah. want to be uh creative constraints man (laughs) yeah exactly exactly and so branding i think one of the things you have done a really great job of is of simple things like you have your own website you're actively posting on instagram there's even a ton of stuff that we don't see but you know on the websites is also you've been able to attract sponsors and represent those sponsors and be a great brand ambassador so uh, uh, there's a lot to dive into and what i think what I want to lead into, because people can hear this and say, hey, that's very nice for you, Monik, <laughs> because you're X, Y, and Z. Like you are, people may consider you, you know, you are good looking, you've achieved this other aspect, you're willing to put yourself out there. But a lot of it is sometimes others may not just want to push their comfort zones. And so I guess an aspect is where's your comfort zone within this branding for you? There's a, there's a lot to go over there. <laughs> But thank you. I don't like. I don't think I'm. Uh, well, let's put it this way. I feel like you know when when I started playing sport, a lot of these brands would find you, or you'd have managers that would find you and then connect you to brands. And in today's day and age, it's so much easier to speak with these brands and connect with them and see if there's a relationship, right? And it's also easier because what these brands are looking for is an audience. And if you have the audience, it's very easy to partner with these brands. So it's, I think the biggest thing that people need to focus on is what are you comfortable with talking about? What are you comfortable posting? And what is your story? What is your brand? And then kind of finding companies and 
outlets to work with that can facilitate that, right? And I've always enjoyed it. I've always enjoyed connecting with different products and brands and especially in the health, wellness and fitness space. I think that's something that's always been interesting to me and I enjoy talking about it and I enjoy reading about it. And so for me, it's pretty easy to to share it and talk about it, you know? So I think if there's some, if you're looking to work with brands and put yourself out there, you need to find topics and companies that you're very comfortable talking about and doing things that you're seamless, you know? Um, Well, what I want to talk about is some, you know, to get to the yes, you often have to get a lot of no's. And I I don't think that's as obvious to those because a lot of times we just see the results, like your brand deals that you are promoting, that the partners you are working with. But Talk to us about your process of, because there are a bunch of no's that come with that. So, you know, how did you approach a brand in general and what was your mindset with that? Well, there there are some no's, even fewer yeses and a lot more no responses, right? And I think that's just the reality of the situation, which, I mean, I don't have a massive following or a massive brand or any of those sort of things, but there are a lot of no responses that that you deal with but it's okay and that's if you don't take the shot and you you just wouldn't know and and you have to try and you have to start and you have to start somewhere and that's kind of the the most important thing and yeah i'm told no all the time or they're not looking for anybody or they're not looking to partner anybody right now but that's just kind of where it is and also finding the right fit for what your brand is and what their brand is is very important. So if the no's are hard for you to hear or if the no responses are hard for you to swallow, you have to try and align yourself with with things that really work for you and what you are so that it's a little more seamless to form that relationship. What's the fuel or inspiration that you use in order, and and I know this this is going to go into real estate very shortly, so if it makes sense to expand there too, but what's the fuel or what's the inspiration that you use that keeps you going i I love to like have different avenues and different things going on and whether it's the real estate piece which is obviously the main piece right now but then that's where the branding piece comes in i have these different avenues and different brands and different things to do and talk about and keep myself creative and entertained and find different ways to talk about things and that's kind of what the biggest inspiration for me really is I draw a lot of inspiration from other people that I see doing really great things and try to emulate, try to follow them. But that's kind of my main source of inspiration is really, it's a lot from me and what I need to do to be happy. And that inspires me to push in these different directions. And then I also find similar people that are doing similar things and imbibe what, what I can from them. And there we go. In shifting gears to talking about real estate, what you're doing now is your main career. You're really, you're leaving squash, A, in a better place, but B, you ascended to the top at a pretty young age relative to a lot of people. So it made sense to kind of explore new horizons. But I'm curious, there's a lot of different ways that you could have gone off. And how did you approach the decision-making process for uh, selecting real estate? Thank you. Uh, first, you know, 
For me, being ahead for the racket was pretty much the pinnacle for me personally with the doubles aspect. You know, I got to number one. I recovered from my injury. I got to number one again. So I think I think a lot to do with it was the what's next aspect. And I loved what I did. And so I think for me, looking towards what's next, I always had a passion for real estate. And I transacted myself personally a couple of years ago. And I love the process and it's always been in the back of my mind. And after my Achilles injury uh, in 2018, that was a little more highlighted that I just, you know, it was 10 months and I couldn't really teach and couldn't really do my job. And until today, I don't think it's, I'm working with the same sort of body or leg that I had prior to that. And so when COVID hit, I was like, okay, I can continue to try and stay fit or, you know, try some other things that I've been wanting to try now that I have the time. So I did try to stay fit and all of that, but I went and got my license and explored working in an agency with a friend and loved it and realized that it was something I wanted to do for the rest of my my career as my second career and I think with the new season that started yesterday or today I guess I just I wanted to change and that's kind of what what spurred it on you know and I wanted a a different challenge I think it's nice of you to say that I reached the pinnacle and all of that but I think that's just for me right It, it might not be the pinnacle for someone else and it might not be the end goal for you know you for example I think for me I just done I wanted to be a, be the head pro of the racket club in 2006 and I did it. And I think for me, that aspect of, of being a teaching professional had was the perfect sort of ending and synergy. And so that's kind of what it was, you know, was a lot of small things, the injury, timing, COVID, and also wanting a new challenge and a new sort of space to, to grow in and put myself in uncomfortable shoes for a little while, you know? Well, I know you're still new within the industry, but you've also been getting some early traction. So talk a little bit about where you are in this process, like the amount of deals you're doing, like talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, It's been good. I've done um, eight transactions so far, just crossed 10 million in sales. I have two more closing this week and one more by the end of the month. So I think that's 11, hopefully, fingers crossed. And then maybe some stuff in Q4 to close out the year pretty strong. But yeah, you know, I've had a good start and I've had a great support system who helped me and encouraged me. And it's such a word of mouth business that I'm very lucky to have the people that have helped me and supported me. But yeah, the sky's the limit. So I'm excited to continue to press forward and work hard. I know within real estate, sometimes people, it's either the type of real estate that they get known for or neighborhood. How are you sort of establishing your your footprint? I live in Williamsburg in Brooklyn, so I'm doing a good amount of business in Brooklyn. But at the same time, my focus is on the client and the, the person I'm working with or for. And, you know, I'm transacting everywhere. There's no way that I'm saying no to a beauty about New York City is it's small, most of the areas already. And then learning about a transaction is something that I am just imbibing and absorbing and enjoying. So every transaction that I'm a part of is a learning experience for me and an an opportunity to work hard for someone. And so I don't have a specific area. Like, you know, I'm not going to say no to you for... (laughs) 
you know, like, hey, like, no, I don't transact there. I'm not there yet. I don't think I'll ever be there yet. I think my thing, my focus is always be around who I'm trying to help and who I'm trying to work with and what they're looking for. So Great. Well, I am going to shift gears into the last part of this, which is a quick fire section. And they don't have to be quick answers, but they're just, if the answers go nowhere, that's no problem. That's on me. But this is something we ask every guest. So you ready for that? I'm ready. I'm sure you're probably familiar with TED Talks. So I'm going to give you a scenario here. And this actually might be a tough one for you. So the reason is uh, you're, you're going to be given uh, the opportunity to give a TED Talk. However, it can't be about anything that you're really well known for. So for here, this removes squash. It removes you know DJing, now real estate. So it's something else about you that either, and it could also be something that you're very curious about, you want to go explore and get the opportunity to do it and then share. But what would your TED Talk be given that criteria? How about health and wellness? Yeah. Was that always there or did your Achilles injury just really sort of explore that? You know, that's it. I was, I'm always been into health, fitness and wellness. So when I had the injury, it was kind of like, wait, why did this happen? And that kind of really had me jump in head first into I'm training, I'm eating well, I'm doing all the right, I think I'm doing all the right things. And then you just realize that, you know, what you're doing, what you're training is not really what you need. And the way you, with what you're eating is not really what works for you, but it's what works for everybody. And you have to kind of figure out, it's, it's such an individual sort of approach to it all. And that's something that fascinated me. And through COVID, I did a lot of courses on it as well, just for my own sort of education and knowledge and learned a ton. And it was something that I was looking forward to taking to the racket club now when everything reopened and, you know, adding a bit of squash specific kind of things. And, but yeah, so that's definitely an avenue and aspect of life that I've thoroughly enjoyed. Was there anything that jumps out for you as like either a piece of information or a thesis of something that was like an unlock for you that you're like, wow, <laughs> that was pretty uh, mind blowing? Yeah, I think for lack of a better example, I think it's a good example is unilateral and bilateral training. I'm not as familiar with that. So what is... So basically as a racket sport athlete or as in any athlete, you're going to have imbalances, right? And you, you want to make sure you're training so single leg or single arm versus both arms and both legs and you have to make sure you're enhancing the strength equally and across the board so when you're doing like a deadlift making sure you do obviously a regular deadlift but also a single leg deadlift and you know if you're doing a chest press you're doing single arm versus double arm chest press you know just making sure you minimize the imbalances or highlight the imbalances so that you focus on them. And I think being an athlete and a squash player, that happens organically and you have to kind of make sure you're doing that stuff. Would it, and I apologize for my, my ignorance here, but there's another concept I learned about, like we focus a lot on big muscles versus the smaller muscle groups. Is that an element of what you're saying there as well? Or what's yeah. the difference? No, it's it's another category altogether, but I'm just saying like instead of squatting with two legs, making sure you try and squat with just one uh, and see how you do and mm. make sure that if you can do it pretty well on, on the left leg, you should be able to do it equally well on the right leg. 
because for me as a left-hander player, my my left side is a lot more stronger than my right. And, you know, you have to make sure when you're doing your training in the gym and stuff, it kind of equalizes and balances each other out. Like when you talk about core exercises, making sure that you prevent the rotation, you know, like anti-rotation and anti-extension sort of drills and things like that, that, you know, my friends at Body Space were huge, like for me in terms of, and Josh as well, Josh Holland, learning about all this kind of stuff and putting in it, putting it into play. I, I took a course by Mike Boyle as well, who's one of most one of the most decorated coaches of all time. And another thing he speaks about is functional movements, right? So as mm. athletes, that's where your big muscles versus strong muscles come in. It's like the movement should be functional for your sport, not functional for the gym right so now mm-hmm. it's like like a lunge is so specific to squash that it's important to do that versus like i'm trying to think okay like a chest press for example right it has to have some sort of functionality as to why you're doing it mm. interesting well I, you know now i'm excited you got to do this ted talk man <laughs> <laughs> yeah we just went off on a whole different tangent there. yeah uh, so the closing question I have is, and you used to just ask it as like, uh, it's, it's about books, but because this is a podcast and even me, I enjoy consuming audio. So is there a book or a podcast you would love, you, you tend to recommend for people? Will at Whoop does a great job with his podcast. I think he talks about a lot of life hacks. My friend Josh Holland has a Simply Walk the Talk. Again, he talks about a lot of sort of health and wellness and life hacks. I think those are the only two podcasts that come to mind at the moment. And then James Clare's book is one of my favorites as well. Which one? James Clare. Uh, atomic habits oh yeah that's yeah. a really good one about so it's like been really huge for me as i'm trying to set up uh, my systems and something new and it's just been it's been really great to to have some to have a guide you know have a place to start and go from there and building habits and building systems and how to structure your day is there any one habit that you're very grateful that you've put in the place that you're seeing some reward from already yeah, I think it's very simple. It's like the morning routine of making sure I don't check email and phone and just get what I'm supposed to do done in the first 15, 20 minutes, whether it's whatever it is, and, and then get to it, not letting someone else take my schedule over prior to me setting the tone for the day. That's something that's been huge for me. I like it. Well, on that note, which was a great one, we're going to draw this uh, interview to a close. But like I said, it's been a long time in the making and appreciate you for taking the time to to join us and share your journey to date. And we're all going to be cheering for you as you go on to uh, new pastures outside of the squash world. So, Thank you very much, Connor. It was great to catch up. And honestly, man, it's been a while and I hope we can do this in person soon. Absolutely, man. Thanks for spending the time. Pleasure. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. 
Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport? Well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and, well, until next time, be well and have fun.